This is the Woodland Hills Family Church Podcast. Our desire is to inspire you and your family to become fully devoted followers of Christ. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Well, good morning, Woodland Hills. How are we doing this morning? Good morning. Well, I'd like to welcome you all here in the castle, in the chapel, and in the courtyard. I hear it's warming up out there, and it's going to be a, a beautiful day for us. Uh, I'm excited today. I'm excited to bring to you Philippians 2 and study uh, that today. Uh, here at Woodland Hills, we take an offering, so I'm um, always grateful and thankful for your cheerful giving. We have multiple ways in which you can um, offer and give. Uh, unfortunately, right now, we're still not passing boxes around here in the foyer, but there are three other ways in which, uh, if you'd like to give, that uh, we can direct you, but through the Church Center app. Uh, online at woodhills.org, as well as our new way. You can text the amount to uh, A4321. Um, and so appreciate that as you help um, financially with the ministries and missions of Woodland Hills. Uh, I love the passage that we get to study today. As you know, we have uh, in the last two weeks been in Philippians. Ted's done a great job. And today we'll be jumping into Philippians um, 2, uh, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open those and follow along. I think it is always um, imperative that we ourselves are studying God's Word, looking over the text and, um, and studying it ourselves. My hope and prayer today for us as a church, as a body, is um, something I heard from Dr. Del Tackett quite a long time ago. And it was very impactful for me, and it has stayed that because I remember it. And he once said that uh, when we look upon the face of God, we cannot be help but be transformed. When we stare and see truly who the Lord is, we are transformed. And my hope this morning is that as we study through these passage, this passage that we are confronted with the true nature, the picture and reality of who Jesus is and what he has done and continues to do for us. Now, in a general sermon structure, it is common for many pastors and sermons to look uh, very similar with a three-point sermon in which those three points are presenting an idea, um, a, a, a thought, a, a way we should... Um, Think, a behavior, and then end with the application in our lives. What we should do. What therefore should we do. And Paul in Philippians 2, I think, flips that around for us. As he starts with what I consider the principles, he's encouraging those at the church that he's writing this letter to. Those in Philippi. Now, remember, Paul is in jail. He's written this letter back to one of his early church plants, a a group of people that have come to know Jesus and are spreading the gospel in Philippi that he loves quite dearly. So he begins with the principle and moves us to the picture. So I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Verses 1 through 4 is the principle Paul is calling us to, the way we should act, what should we do, And he ends with a picture of why we should be doing that. Quite different than often we have. And so going with the text, we will do the same for us this morning. So jumping right in, we're going to start off in verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I realize very quickly, this is a tall task that Paul is calling us to. In my opinion, what he is, the overarching idea and concept is that of unity. He loves these people. He is encouraging them to be unified. And when I look at the four different things, when I boil all that down, just simply pulling from the text, I believe he's saying, hey, be of the same mind. Hey, have the same love. Humble yourself and think of others more than yourself. Right? That all these things lead to unity. I feel as though I would be wasting my breath this morning to contend that unity is something easily grasped. In today's culture, in our workplaces, and even in our relationships. We all inherently recognize the friction that occurs from different opinions, beliefs, what we should be doing, what's going on. We all recognize that there is a lack of unity in many, many areas. I do believe it begs the question, why is this so hard? What makes unity so difficult? Why is this so hard? And to illustrate this, I want to pick up the idea of thinking about sports teams. The athletic world. Because I think it presents a picture that we easily understand and can apply back to the way in which we live our lives. You see, sports teams are a group of individuals coming together that don a jersey, that should have a similar goal, that are striving to compete and win. When we see a team working well, it is a thing of beauty. When I walk into a gym and I see five players playing for one another, when I see five players playing their role, it is a thing of beauty. However, more often than not, when I walk into a gym, I see players who are looking out for their own glory. They are going after their own name. They want more shots. They want a bigger role on the team. Their voices, they're disgruntled because their voice is not being heard. They are unhappy with the coach's direction of the team and think they have better ideas. It does not take us long to even take into account the actual realms of football and basketball right now to think how many disgruntled players there are. I want out of this situation. My contract is garbage. I am the deal. Give me the spotlight. I want the limelight. It is about me. 
We are no different, are we? We often are pursuing the very same things at which we see so easily in athletes. Another way to put it is, I believe it comes down to a sense of entitlement. Yes, it's sin, but that sin named is a sense of entitlement. I deserve, you owe me, and I'm entitled to this. I deserve, you owe me, and I'm entitled to this. It is a self-centered pride that keeps us from unity. It is the pride that says, I'm better than all of you. I deserve this. I should get this. Don't you know who I am? My thoughts, my opinions. This self-centered, everything is about me. Everything that's going on is processed through how that affects me, what that means to me, and what's going on in my world. It is a absolute destroyer of unity a constant conversation in our house with our children is goes something like this young child may i remind you that the world does not revolve around you (laughs) had a soccer party the other day walking into cold stone the oldest son's party Walks right to the front of the line. The coach is paying for the ice cream. Great. Love that. Me and the other two in the back of the line. Gets his ice cream. We're talking. We get to the front of the line. We get our ice cream. We pay for it. We turn around. And my oldest looks at me and goes, Dad, I'm done with my ice cream. Can we go? And I looked at him and I said, Son, do you see that we just got our ice cream here? My daughter has yet to spill, okay? We've not even started. You know, this does not revolve around you. You, son, are in the midst of a family here. This unit here, there are things that you have to think outside of what is good for you. Yes, you ate your ice cream. Yes, you're excited to go home and play. But think about us for a second. Children are very good at demonstrating this principle, aren't they? It is because they have not learned the ways that we have learned to disguise. <laughs> right? We often still think in terms, we are the center of the world. But we have chosen clever ways to say that and mask that. But ultimately, we still recognize this self-centeredness. I believe Abraham Lincoln put it best when he said this, what kills the skunk is the publicity it gives itself. (laughs) What kills the skunk is the publicity it gives itself. We are very much the same way as we often pursue what is best for us Me first, centered sense of entitlement. I believe Paul is setting all of this up. I believe Paul has provided us the principles in which he is encouraging those in Christ to treat one another, to be unified. But how does he encourage us to do such? We recognize this is difficult. 
This is hard. How do we change and live this out? One, uh, one of our favorite shows in the McIlvain house is America's Funniest Home Videos. Big fans love it. Okay, there's nothing better than everybody in the family all laughing together at everybody else's mistakes, okay? <laughs> and one of our favorites was um, a video of about a three-year-old, I think he's three, and um, he's in the family room and, and the videos, and, and he's over there, you know, trying really hard, you know, gripping, and he's just got this you know, very focused face, and the sister who's recording says, Timmy, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm trying to turn four. <laughs> I'm trying to turn four. And I feel as though sometimes when we come on these kinds of principles, we have the tendency to do the same thing. That it is our power that it is our will, that it is our grit, it is me doing the work to be humble. Just listen to that sentence in itself. Right? That we grit our teeth and move forward. However, Paul does not give that to us. Paul does not present a three-step process in which we are to live these principles out. He does something very different. Now, if you recall and think, athletes have a goal, right? The goal is to win. The goal is to win the trophy, the championship. As believers in Christ, our goals are different. We have a different reason we are doing this. Our focus is on Jesus. Matthew 16, 24 says this, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you have given your life over to the Lord, we are following Christ. We look upon who he is and imitate Paul, the author of Philippians, is the very person who elsewhere in Scripture says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We see who Christ is and we follow him. We are doing the same here. Jesus is who we are following. He is the ultimate picture of humility. He is the perfect display of humility and love he doesn't say try these steps paul shows us a picture of jesus in verses 6 through 11 my my main point today is this the humility of christ is the perfect picture we imitate to bring about the improbable act of unity I believe that sometimes we get it backwards. The pursuit of unity is difficult. In my coaching days alone, I wish it was as easy as sometimes I believed it to be where I recognized dysfunction on my team and I kept, hey, fellas, come on, come on, be a team. Let's go. What are we doing here? Never worked. My record showed that, okay? And ultimately, I recognize that in my own life, it doesn't work that way. Right? I, hey, come on. What are we doing? Let's get this together. Let's be unified. What are we doing? It's very difficult. 
Because we have our own views, we have our own ideas of what's good, and Paul shows us the picture of Christ. Augustine, one of the great thinkers of the Christian faith, given much to us once, replied this, what are the central principles of the Christian life? And he replied, number one is humility. Number two is humility. And number three is humility. And so as we jump into Philippians 2, 5 through 6, let us pause and let us take a deep account of the humility that Jesus has displayed. Verse 5 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This concept of being in the form of God means just this. Jesus has eternally always been God. Paul starts off his picture of Jesus by making it clear who he is. John 1.1 1, 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, Uh, The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus existed before He came to this earth. He is eternal. He is divine. He is a part of the Trinity. To say, therefore, that Christ existed in the form of God is to say that apart from His human nature, Christ possessed all the characteristics and qualities belonging to God because He is, in fact, God. Jesus, fully God, fully man. One commentator put it like this. Though Christ has all the rights, privileges, and honors of deity, which He was worthy of and could never be disqualified from, His attitude was to not cling to those things or his position, but to be willing to give them up for a season. Jesus is the only person ever to be able to have the right of being equal with God. And yet he humbles himself. What a picture we have already in our Lord and Savior. True humility. And I don't know about you, but I also recognize there is false humility. I always have that picture of false humility, like I've ever made a dip in my life. But when you go to somebody else's house and you make a dish, you know, and they say, oh, that dip was so amazing. And the person, oh, stop it. Oh, stop. You know, you know that kind of like they're putting up the stop, but then they're also saying, you know, keep it coming. The stop and go there. This true humility Christ displays unlike at times the false humility that we often have. We live in a culture right now where building one's brand, strengthening one's status, building one's resume is rampant. And a temptation that we all at times can face with the titles and positions that we find ourselves. But Paul is clearly laying out who Christ is. I remember one day we opened up the school I work at about eight years and there was um, 
uh, a big name there to help us do that, to uh, uh, Christendom the dedication of this school. And, uh, and I had received a, a new position in an administration, and, and I, was, I was really nervous just trying to live into that and, and live up to that, that responsibility. And so this was a big deal for me. I was, I, was, I was really nervous. I wanted the building to be perfect. I wanted everything to just be perfect. And uh, it so happened that I went to walk back to the bathroom. I met this individual in the hallway. And I got a little nervous. And he's walking my way and his eyes got big. You know, he gives the nonverbals that he wants to approach. And, and he sticks his hand out with a, young man, I, I have not got the chance to meet you yet. And I was, I was taken back. You know, he didn't have, you know... Th- this is the big. This is the big name, the big speaker. He, why is he acting as if he's done wrong by not introducing himself or knowing my name yet? So I, I shake his hand. I said, "Well, sir, my name's Scott McElvain. And then I had that pause of like, "But I know who he is." Do I ask him what his name is? <laughs> like, and I just kind of froze. Like that's my name's Scott McElvain. And I'm just like looking at him. And he was kind and gracious to continue the conversation in very encouraging ways, complimentary to the school and what we got going on here. But I remember walking away just thinking of this as a small picture of what ultimately is infinitely found in Jesus. The big name, the big status, coming to somebody who he knows nothing about and extending his hand to ask me who I am. It's a great little picture of humility there that I often recognize is not a part of my own, my own interactions. Continuing in Philippians 2, 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus did not empty himself of his divinity. He was always divine. Instead, it was a self-renunciation. What did he renunciate himself from? Well, first of all, his heavenly glory. Being in heaven with the Father, Jesus left to come to earth. I always think of the Apostles' Creed. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He left the heavenly glory to come down to earth. He gave and renounce himself of his independent authority. He submits himself to the will of the Father, which we'll see here in a second as well. He also set aside his voluntary display of his divine attributes and submitted himself to the Spirit's direction. Jesus taking the form of a servant, the audacity of that, the very person who had every right And all the privileges and essentially who he is takes the form of a servant. John 13 is always a picture I get of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. The God of the universe, fully man, fully God, grabs a basin of water and kneels down to wash the dirty feet of his disciples. What a servant. What a picture of humility Jesus is. Philippians 2.8 And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. Jesus was made, um, found in human form. He looked like everybody else. Could have chosen to look in a very different way. Could have been a showstopper, but he chose to be found in a normal way. Jesus appeared to be a man and nothing more. He could have chosen coming looking very differently, but he did not. His obedience to the Father was on display. His obedience was not to death. It was to the Father that ultimately led him to the cross. He did not go to the cross asking, what's in it for me? He did not go and, 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 and go to the cross to look at me dying the worst death conceivable in that time. He did it thinking of us. Thinking of the love that he has for us. John Piper writes this, You were owed hell and you got heaven at the cost of the Son of God. You were owed hell from our sins, our transgressions, and we got heaven at the cost of the Son of God who loved us and humbled himself enough to leave the heavenly glory, come on this earth, live a perfect life, be the sacrifice on the cross for us to be upon the acceptance of the free gift of salvation made right with the Father. We are humbled as we look at the picture of Christ and what he did for us. It is his work, his love, his humility that Christ, that leads us to humble ourselves. Unity is not the root. It is the fruit. The fruit is unity. The root is humility. Unity happens through humility. Christ is the picture of that. I have to be transparent with you for a second to tell you that the last two weeks in the McIlvain house has been a whirlwind. We have had things stacked on top of each other. We've started house projects and house projects always go tough. They are difficult. We've had much work. We, um, we've had a lot of things going on the last two weeks. I have been short. I have poor communication, poor scheduling, and, and ultimately that has led to Nicole and I not being on the same page. One night we got in a discussion, as somebody pointed out in first service, about the direction of a house project otherwise known as an argument. (laughs) I had a different view of what our schedule would look like and how I would be spending my time that night. Things needed to be done for the time that we had the scaffolding and when I needed to be back. Ultimately, I left saying, I just got to go. Listen, I got to prep for the sermon on the humility of Christ. (laughs) Okay, you deal with this. You already see where this is going here. I'm in my office and I'm having that internal conversation that we have all the time with ourselves. Things like, she should know better. 
I deserve this time to prep. And, and here was the big one for me. I'm not apologizing. She's going to be the first one to take the step and apologize. This was her deal. Okay, now I'm saying these things sitting in my office chair, looking out the window, fuming, and both literally and figuratively, I say to myself, I just got to push that to the side and I got to turn my chair and start studying and learning about the humility of Christ. (laughs) Not generally the way you want to go into prepping for a sermon. Well, it would, it, so be it that in preparation, the Lord held up a mirror to me that night. And I saw, I saw myself and the pride and the self-centered ways in which I had been in my marriage with my beautiful and loving wife. God has given me a great gift in her and I'm honored by her in in more ways I can count. The sermon I was reading absolutely spoke to everything that I was was thinking and feeling that night. In which he he brought about the application of what humility looks like in marriages to the point so specifically about this idea of waiting for her to apologize. And I broke down, for I had seen the heart. Went home and we had a discussion and a conversation in which um, we asked for forgiveness from one another, said we are sorry. And in the humility of both of us, ultimately humility led to unity. You see, we, it's kind of like one of the things we say to each other is, we're the best. We're the best. The McElvey, we, we are the best. We want our marriage to be healthy and good and we want to have the best. We're very competitive, as you can tell. <laughs> and it is but a great picture in which when humility occurs, when we humble ourselves, when we think of others when we focus in the gospel and we, we, we align our, our affections, our love, when we think the way God thinks, unity can occur. Unity can occur. And I pray that for us. I pray that as you leave or maybe as you've been sitting here that the Spirit's been working in you to reveal ways in which you recognize unity is not a part of some relationships, friendships, that instead of gritting our teeth and trying harder, that we would continue to focus our eyes upon Jesus, who is the ultimate picture of humility, as we imitate him towards the improbable act of unity. Within Hills, would you please stand with me as we pray and conclude our time together? Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for the mirror that it is to show us the nature of our hearts.
and to reveal the character of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we not lose sight of that picture. The humility of Jesus, who left the heavens, deserving all rights, all stature, all titles, was born in a manger, and was led to the cross, because he was obedient to you, Father, and that you and your Son loved us enough. So Lord, may we see the ways in which we may humble ourselves, that we may seek unity in the body of Christ. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. It's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.